The world is at a pivotal moment. Geopolitical clashes have spawned an intense race for technology leadership. Industries are being reshaped. Globalization is being reimagined. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Kirti Gupta. We're here to break down how geopolitics and technology are impacting our economy, our security, and and our our daily daily lives. This This is is Geotech Wars. We're joined on the first inaugural episode of Geotech Wars by Dr. Edlin Levine, who is the chief science officer and co-founder of America's Frontier Fund. She's joined by me and Kirti Gupta, our co-host here at CSIS. Welcome. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here with both of you. Great to be here. Kirti's going to jump in in a minute, but Edlin, I want to ask you to briefly describe what the American Frontier Foundation does and what your role in founding it. What do you do there? Sure thing. That's a great question. So America's Frontier Fund is a manager of funds that are dedicated to investing in frontier technologies that are going to be shaping the industries of the 21st century. And our role in investing in these technologies is to ensure that U.S. and global democracies have a leading place in those industries of the future. Part of understanding my role is to understand my background. You know, I'm a physicist. I did my PhD at Harvard University, and then I went to an FFRDC called MITRE Corporation. And in working over a decade in the landscape of actually inventing, right, myself being at the cutting edge of pioneering and inventing new technologies that are at the interface of national security and economic resiliency, you know, I focused on the real problems that we face in terms of translating from concept and prototype and proof of principle to actually moving into the commercial market. So I ended up co-founding in my current roles as co-founder and chief science officer at America's Frontier Fund to really focus on those deep tech emerging technologies and how it is that our fund can actually work in the broader ecosystem of the U.S. innovation base to translate those technologies from their initiation into commercialized reality that are important from the investor's perspective, that you actually do have a market at the end of the day that's willing to engage in and ultimately purchase the types of technologies that are being brought to a fore. And certainly there are some technologies in the national security landscape that never should cross that divide. And there are others that should do so and never do because of inefficiencies in that innovation ecosystem that we're facing today. So give me an example of the kind of products we're talking about. Yeah, that's a great question. And this is uniquely focused on what I would call deep tech as opposed to some people might call soft tech, which is more software based. You know, a lot of times we're facing technologies that are actual hardware, actual building of new prototypes. And they might be For example, components to a system, you might be talking about, for example, a new hardware device component in a communication stack. You might be talking about a new propulsion system in an aviation platform. You might be talking about a new material that will revolutionize, for example, resiliency or strength in in certain like launch capabilities, et cetera. So these are all the types of deep technologies that ultimately, when you think about their ability to translate into the market, face many barriers to entry not the least of which is the upfront cost and long timelines to retire technology risks. And an example that I usually like to give in terms of transformative foundational technology that falls under this deep tech landscape is laser technology. The initiation of the laser was a breakthrough from a physics perspective, and it actually faced a not too difficult translation into the commercial market in part because a lot of people recognized the impact that it could have on telecommunications. That being said, 
If you think about the trillions of dollars worth of industry that the laser has opened up, not only in telecommunications, the ability, you know, Kirti, our world of semiconductors to some degree, a lot of laser-based technologies are used in the fabrication of semiconductors, also used for precision metrology, also used for heavy metallurgy, also used for surgeries, also used as toys for cats, right? You name it. The laser has had a huge impact. And yet if you look at its global market today, it's $16 billion. And that's one of the problems is that's yawning territory for most VCs. But if we, and this is one of the, the decisive points for, for AFF to focus on, and peer-minded venture capitalists, if we're able to focus on those key platform enabling technologies in parallel with the types of technologies that will benefit from them, what are the platform capabilities that would be built on top of those, then we have a true market advantage in terms of advancing technology leadership and creating those industries of the future. Thank you, Edlin. I wanted to emphasize what you just said about platform and enabling technologies, because those are the technologies that then everybody else can build on and put in their products and innovate further. And that's really where the fault line is. If we are able to continue to lead in those technologies, that's true technological leadership. And let's unpack that a little bit as we proceed in this conversation for both chips and for other kinds of technologies, 5G, 6G, AI, quantum compute, on which we are facing these current geotech wars. One of the things I wanted to ask you quickly, you were at MITRE before, and you know I think that's super relevant for our conversation. Can you explain very briefly what MITRE did? Sure thing. So MITRE manages six federally funded research and development centers for the federal government. The FFRDCs, that's the abbreviation, FFRDC is Federally Funded Research and Development Center, play a very important role in the U.S. innovation and technology ecosystem. Today, I believe the U.S. has somewhere in the order of 42 of these FFRDCs, and some of them include, you know, very famous laboratories like Los Alamos National Laboratory, Sandia National Laboratory, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and these organizations focus on the specialized mission of their sponsoring agencies and are specialists in the types of technology development and support that is uniquely needed by those sponsoring agencies in the government. The FFRDCs grew out of the era of World War II and the Cold War to support those technical functions for the government and play that critical role. It's important to understand where FFRDCs fit within this national landscape of U.S. innovation, right? The U.S. innovation and technology engine is driven by, yes, FFRDCs and national labs as one pillar, but there are three other important pillars, those of the research universities, which are specialists in advancing technology and workforce development, that of high-tech industry, which is a specialist in terms of capacity for building out the types of high-tech products that are necessary and also are juggernauts in terms of research and development, particularly if you look at, for example, famous industrial labs like Xerox Park and Bell Labs of the previous century. And then finally, there's the capital markets, right? And in particular, risk capital and venture capital, which is where I am today. So it's those four pillars that really create the foundation of our U.S. innovation ecosystem. But like I said before, it's looking across that ecosystem, those four pillars and understanding where they might be inefficient, right? What are the technologies that they're not solving for? The fact that the United States has seen a drastic contraction of its industrial high-tech base over the course of the past several decades, right, has led to a atrophy of our industrial commons and therefore an inability for the U.S. to efficiently be able to scale technologies, which means that while on the universities and the national laboratories, we're very good still at inventing new technologies and creating new value, the United States has become very poor at 
capturing that value because we don't have that industrial commons. And that's one of the aspects, you know, the translation, why did I want to move from the FFRDC to actually founding America's Frontier Fund was to help bridge that gap because America's Frontier Fund is not a pure play venture capital organization. We actually work very deeply to partner with industry, with government to create the types of landscapes and actually change the game such that U.S. innovators have an asymmetric advantage to scaling their technologies here rather than moving their technologies offshore because that's where the industrial commons are located. I mean, this is really what we're talking about when we talk about industrial policy, correct? Very much so. So that's a term that's thrown around a lot in D.C., and I'm glad you just shed a lot of light on it as well. But I want to ask both of you, You've both been active in some research projects at Stanford that really describe the current crisis that the semiconductor chips industry is facing, particularly related to Taiwan. I also believe that you're working on some recommendations for U.S. policymakers. Can we first discuss what the crisis is and then get into the research you all are doing and what those recommendations are? Kirti, do you want to lead it off? Sure. So, the crisis is explained in very simple terms by acknowledging you know, the kind of technologies that Adlin was describing. Semiconductor chips are the foundation of everything everywhere. They're really, some call it the oil of the modern economy. Not a perfect analogy because they keep changing, unlike oil. But it is a great analogy in the sense that they power today's modern economy. People like you and me and most citizens use over 3,000 chips a day in their daily lives, in their cars, computers, washer dryers, everything, you know? Wait, say that again. Say that again. We use over 3,000 chips a day. We use over 3,000 chips a day. Your average smartphone has over 250 chips right now. An average car has 3,000 chips right now. Even a small device like a hairdryer has a few chips in it. And most of those chips now are produced in Asia Pacific and especially Taiwan. In fact, for the most leading edge chips, which we call under 10 nanometer in our industry, 90 plus percent of those chips are manufactured today in Taiwan at TSMC and some of the other leading fabs, what we call fabs or manufacturing foundries. And those are areas that are at the fault line of current geopolitical risk. You know, if you read the newspaper, you know that there is some concern about China and its aspirations uh, vis-a-vis Taiwan and a potential conflict arising there. And that has led to an incredible amount of attention on what do we do to build some resiliency in the system for global industries, for global consumers to do some kind of reshoring or friendshoring of these chips onto the United States or other allied nations. Also, because let me just emphasize one thing, the semiconductor industry is growing at a rapid pace. We need to build capacity regardless. It took us 40 years to become a half a trillion dollar industry. It's only going to take eight more years to become a one trillion dollar industry. So geopolitical risk aside, adding capacity is critical. And that has led to this incredible amount of you know subsidies and other kinds of programs across the world, like the CHIPS Act in the United States, to add more manufacturing capabilities to the U.S. and to allied nations. This is not easy. It has challenges. And that's the kind of thing we are working on in some of our research projects. Adeline? Yeah, I would agree. But I would also at this point shy away from calling this a crisis moment in as much as I would say 
that this is a geopolitical reality that we need to carefully navigate. That's the current state of the world, to the point that we have concern over Taiwan, to some degree is agnostic of you know, any potential conflict in the sense that for the global economy, having single points of failure in critical economic supply chains, you know, high-tech supply chains that actually power our global and digital economies, it's not necessarily a good idea, right? And so if you think about supply shocks that might come in the wake of natural disasters, such as you know, droughts or pandemics. We lived through some of those during the COVID-19 pandemic. We see that it might not necessarily be such a good idea to have such a high concentration of such critical capabilities in one geographic location, no matter where in the world and no matter what time and whether or not there is conflict. And, you know, to, to that degree, it's also remarkable just to acknowledge this, the scale that Taiwan has been able to aggregate, which is a true credit to their own versions of industrial policy. If you look back at the initiation of ITRI, which then led to the spin-outs of UMC and TSMC, which are juggernauts today in the fabrication of semiconductors, as well as the types of fabulous companies, media tech, packaging capabilities that Taiwan has been able to aggregate. And just thinking about that scale, TSMC itself you know, has multiple fabs in Taiwan. In particular, they have four gigafabs at the 300 millimeter wafer size level that exceed a million wafer starts a month. And they produce annually over 12,000 differentiated products for over 500 customers in the world. And that is critical, right? That concentration in the one geographical location, even from a business supply chain risk management perspective, that's not necessarily a good idea to have that kind of aggregation. And so even the business savvy world will say for a single company to start diversifying assets around the globe, that's what they're going to do. And TSMC has been very clear in terms of their moving, for example, to building a fab in Arizona, right? The drive is because of their customer demands, right? They prioritize their customers, their shareholders, and their employees in that construct. Can I ask you both, though, and this might be a very simple question, but I think sometimes the simplest questions are the ones that get to the heart of the matter. How is it possible that the United States has come to rely on Taiwan for such a critical technology, especially when we know that Taiwan is in perpetual conflict with China. So, you know, representing the semiconductor industry, I, I mean, I would just say that this didn't happen overnight. This is, you know, 60 or 70 years of evolution of the semiconductor industry in a world where this is a post-World War II world. And industries are all trying to diversify their supply chains, set operations in different parts of the world where it just makes economic sense and it's cost effective. And what happened over time was it was far more cost effective to do production and manufacturing, outsource those to different parts of the world. And Taiwan emerged as a leader while the U.S. companies, and that's where the semiconductor revolution started. It started with the solid state revolution at Bell Labs and led to Fairchild semiconductors and Intels of the world and so on. But those companies like TI and Qualcomm and others wanted to ensure that our costs are minimized. And it's the Adam Smith truism, right? You're focusing on your comparative advantage, which is R&D, design, tools, and trying to outsource things that others are more efficient at. And manufacturing requires this level of scale and size and efficiency and much lower, you know, at that time, cost of personnel and employees and manufacturing and materials and tools that was enabled by these other regions. You know, real economic efficiency sense in doing this. 
I'll add to that, though, the, the interesting thing to look at, Andrew, and, and Kirti had mentioned this comparative advantage from an economic point of view. That means that a country which is good at something remains good at it and doesn't necessarily try to compete with another country. If you're good at making shoes, don't try to make wine. Trade your shoes for wine, as an example. The interesting thing, if you look at the evolution of the semiconductor industry, is that that was the United States' comparative advantage, including manufacturing, was a U.S. comparative advantage. It was the semiconductor technology and industry was born in the United States and it grew up in the United States, but it was ultimately offshored for originally economic reasons, right? Fairchild was the first company in the 1960s to offshore assembly and test to Hong Kong because of the high cost of labor, right? So there was a labor arbitrage opportunity there. But increasingly, right, so there was some aspect of just the cost of doing business, but there also was very aggressive mercantilist policies on the part of both democracies and communist countries in Asia to actually track those industries because they realized that this is a way to upgrade their economy from agrarian-based economies to high-tech societies. And the United States was basically asleep at the wheel. We did not respond and maintain a competitive landscape in a global world where things like heavy tax subsidies and tax holidays, industrial build-outs, land grants, favorable education policies were being played out in these other parts of the world. We were asleep at the wheel and we lost that comparative advantage because of then those economic efficiencies that multinational corporations were able to take advantage of. So that has been the evolution. And, and that gets back to what I was talking about, the hollowing out of the U.S. industrial base, the innovation and industrial commons, which in a, an industry like semiconductors is so vital. Right, Kirti, going back to the analogy you had made, the reason semiconductors are not like oil is because of how drastically they change in terms of technology and product cycles. It's not a static commodity. And so you have to have this combination of manufacturing and research and innovation. If you have research without manufacturing, you have a bridge to nowhere. And if you have only manufacturing without research, you're on a pathway to obsolescence. And so it's absolutely vital to have both of those things together. And the United States made a bet that, hey, you know, we'll just be like research and design experts. And we don't need that manufacturing stuff. That bet is, is maturing now and is not yielding the dividends and benefits that we had hoped for. So we're falling behind. That's a really important way of putting it. So I take it the recommendations that are coming out of the project you're working on at Stanford for the United States government is to build those bridges back. Very much so. Very much so. And I would say there's largely three primary things that need to be kept in mind in crafting successful policies in what we might call industrial policy. And I know, Andrew, that industrial policy is often viewed as an anathema on both sides of the aisle in D.C., but what I can say is, first of all, the United States does have an industrial policy because we set a regulatory and tax environment, as an example, in which industries and multinational corporations play in, in a global sphere. Some people will quip that today's industrial policy in the United States is set by China, right? That's set in Beijing. And so we need to respond to that. So the three things that really, I think, come out from the focus on industry and research, right, the recommendations from the study, first is understand the root causes for why the United States lost our competitiveness and comparative advantage to begin with. The fact that our tax system today for corporations that have high capital expenditures and high research costs are non-competitive globally, they're even biased against high cap expenditures in the United States. Our regulatory environment is disastrous, which is not only bad for attracting industry, but also means that industry plays an environmental arbitrage where they'll go to other parts of the world that don't have environmental regulations and pollute. 
And that's not good, you know, if we're looking at global health outcomes and the global climate. Antitrust enforcement, it hasn't been as big a deal in, in the semiconductor industry, but if you look at what happened to the communications industry, which is a huge downstream customer, particularly here to your perspective, antitrust enforcement basically lost U.S. capital equipment suppliers in telecommunications, and that's put us at risk in terms of not being able to lead in next generations, 5G, 6G of telecommunications. The fact that the United States has no answer to the mercantilist policies of other nations, most importantly China, other problems that we have with education, immigration, you know, near-termism of shareholders and corporations, that's big. So look at the root causes. That was number one. The second point is to focus not just on value creation, but also on value capture. A lot of voices in Washington will say, we need more research and development. We need more spending on science and breakthrough technologies. Well, if you have no way to capture the value of those technologies, no industrial commons, no manufacturing facilities, no workforce, no ability to actually translate those breakthroughs into what would be economic outcomes for U.S. taxpayers, then we're going to lose out. So don't only focus on value creation, focus on value capture. And let me just quickly interject, Adlin, that value capture also includes IP. Oh, for sure. Right. Which has been another angle where the United States has been declining over the last 30 or 40 years, while China has been strengthening its intellectual property system Mm -hmm. to be able to capture the value of ideas and innovations. We have been doing the opposite. But please go on. 100 percent. Yeah. The last thing that I'll say just in terms of focusing is that the strategy that the U.S. has taken in terms of the CHIPS Act is a $52 billion subsidy. And so the last point behind recommendations that we make is to ensure that the subsidies are distributed in a market-driven manner, such that they are sustainable and competitive and not allocated based on political favoritism. That's the baseline for ensuring that that's a successful investment of U.S. taxpayer dollars that, for example, turns $50 billion into $500 billion. And the U.S. government has proven an ability to do that. When you look at, for example, NASA's Commercial Orbital Transportation Services Program, They had a several X increase in the government taxpayer dollars because they made a requirement that the market participate in those subsidies. And that's the reason, right? The reason that NASA had that program was because of a strategic need that the United States had to onshore capabilities to, for example, get astronauts up into orbit without depending on Russia and sending them to Kazakhstan. And we succeeded in doing that. And so if we look at the U.S. government's track record, we do have a good track record in that sense. But we also have some areas where, you know, we could have been more market driven and more successful in our allocation of capital. So that's going to be key. Yeah. I mean, I would just like to add a little bit to the third pillar right now. And I think that's critical for the CHIPS Act. It's $52 billion, $39 billion is targeted towards manufacturing. Now you compare that, and this is over a period of multiple years, you compare that to the operating cost of TSMC, just one of the major foundries in Taiwan, the most important one, but it's over $100 million a year per year versus $39 million, which are spread over a number of years. If we don't find a way to multiply that capital that the government has put in, we are not going to go anywhere. So this really requires some kind of a multiplication effect that Edlin, you were talking about through public-private partnerships. I would like to also talk a little bit about export controls. (laughs) This is a very powerful tool that the government has and has understood its power by applying to you know Huawei by applying against Russia in the Russia-Ukraine war. And it's an important tool. But I think it's also important to use it wisely and use it to win. For example, in the semiconductor industry, the Department of Commerce's BIS has applied these export controls multiple times for 
discontinuing tech transfer from US to China. And that's important. Or doing trade with China in certain categories of technologies. And that's important. But if we do it fast, so fast, and if we do it in a way that we haven't yet built the resiliency to get the chips we need right now from China from somewhere else, or to be able to do business with the world, not through China, but through somewhere else, we are going to lose anyway. We are going to lose this leadership story anyway, because we kill our industry before it becomes a robust one. Happy to unpack that, but Edwin, I'd love to know your thoughts. All that I was going to say is, you know, one needs to apply these types of policies very quickly to understand. And economic analysis, actually, Kirti, your field can help provide insight into how to craft those types of policies, export controls, et cetera, very well, because there are going to be real economic consequences to U.S. firms. And therefore, those U.S. firms' ability to penetrate global markets for technology, as well as then their ability to continue to be innovation leaders. It's really something that I think needs to be treated with caution and a lot of foresight. Evelyn, I think you've already answered this to some extent, but why do you think competition for technological leadership matters so much and what's really at stake? Ultimately, the fight for technology leadership is a fight for global leadership and ultimately a fight for our values, right? As democratic nations that believe in individual liberty, that believe in Westphalian sovereignty, that believe in the rule of law. Our ability as the United States and as a democracy in a world that consists of other democracies to defend those values and to protect ourselves is going to be driven by technology. And we see this competition play out in areas that are non-kinetic. For example, if you look at standards development in the telecommunications world, that is a competition amongst nations, amongst companies to establish standards for the future of technologies. And if you look at the future of telecommunications, and the application of, are we going to respect privacy? Are we going to be upholding that type of element of individual liberty, of freedom of speech? All of that gets embedded into technology and into standards. When we look at the future of other technologies like artificial intelligence, and you've looked over the past couple of years as to how artificial intelligence and its applications have played out in autocratic nations versus democratic nations, right? Look at the difference between, for example, Taiwan's use of AI in the pandemic and that of China, and you see a huge difference in the outcomes for human welfare. That's going to be cutting edge of the future competition, which is can the United States and can global democracies remain technology leaders and therefore remain leaders in the global world stage to essentially define the way world order looks in the 21st century. Yeah, a lot at stake. Kirti, where do you see this competition play out the most? So let me put a pin on some of these things that Edlin was talking about, right? So let's say communications, for example, my field, I'm a wireless engineer turned economist, still a recovering engineer. (laughs) And in that industry, you need to ask the question or in any of these technologies, right? Like taking a step back, who sets the innovation agenda and under which value system? In the telecommunications industry right now, the innovation agenda is set by the industry responding to the needs of the market. When we had 1G in the 1980s, you guys remember your Motorola $4,000 brick phones, maybe. The innovation agenda was set by the consumer saying capacity was running out. There were 10x more demand than there was supply. So the world, the industry coalesced together to say, all right, we need 2G now. We need more capacity. 
And then they said, we need more data. So we came up with 3G and 4G. And then we said, oh, we need everything to communicate with each other, not just phones, but also cars and industries and smartphones and smart homes. And we came up with 5G. And at a very micro level, we set the innovation agenda this way too. We do lawful intercept in 5G communications, in all Gs. How do we decide what those requirements for intercepting communications between users is? We define based on our values, based on our needs, based on consumers and the markets. But if the innovation agenda is going to be set as a state-driven agenda, and depending on the nature and the values of that state, what that looks like, is it a surveillance state? Then 5G communication standards would look very different. So I just wanted to make this very concrete. Now you can translate this to AI. You can translate to these massively fast growing and fast progressive technologies and what that might mean for us as society, as consumers, as the world. And where I see this play out the most is exactly here, Andrew, the technologies that are at the cutting edge. AI, quantum compute, 5G, 6G standards, semiconductor chips, which are really also what you were saying, Adlin, are foundational enabling technologies that enable other applications and products and uses. I want to ask you both finally, what's the key takeaway that you want to leave our audience with? Edlin, why don't you go first? Sure thing. The key takeaway is that the battle for technology leadership is the battle for technology. And that's going to be the most important area for us to focus on in the 21st century. Semiconductors are an exemplar. That is the industry of the day and the technology of the day that we're looking at. But this is cross-sectional across so many different industries that the United States and that the Western world have led in, but have actually hemorrhaged their leadership. You think about, for example, energy, energy security, energy abundance. What are the positions of the United States and other democracies in energy storage, energy generation, aerospace, transportation, critical minerals, materials, etc.? Semiconductors are an example. And if we don't get this right for semiconductors, we might miss the boat on all of these critical industries and therefore lose the battle for actually shaping world order in this the next coming decades. Kirti. So I would say that we live in the knowledge economy today. 80% of our return on investments are economic growth comes from innovation, not from labor, not from capital. So the fight for technology leadership is the fight for economic leadership. And without economic leadership, there's no national security. Fight for firm competitiveness, competitiveness of our companies, of our industry is national competitiveness because we are not in the world anymore where we are you know, using government defined subsidies only to do R&D. We must make our companies, our universities successful. And I agree with Adlin that semiconductors is just the tip of the spare. This is coming, you know, vacation from history is over. We are going to see mega changes. And that's why we call this podcast Geotech Wars. Well, that's a great way to end our inaugural podcast. Dr. Levine, thank you for being here. Kirti, it's such a pleasure to co-host such an important podcast with you. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into Geotech Wars. You can listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Don't forget to rate and review us. Until next time.